This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, author Coral Dasgupta. Um, she's author of the Sati series, which we'll talk more about. Specifically, we're looking at the second installment of the series, uh, her retelling of the story of Kunti. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj. So... On the one hand, the New Books Network typically looks at um, nonfiction works, uh, new scholarship. On the other hand, uh, for scholars of the Mahabharata and certainly students of the Mahabharata, there would be great interest in a retelling such as this. So it makes perfect sense to me to um, include it on the podcast. Now, um, this book that is called Kunti is part of the Sati series. What is the Sati series? Uh, Sati series is uh, the retelling of the Panchkanya from Indian mythology, which includes Ahalya Kunti, Draupadi, Mandodari, Tara. And there is a sloka which uh, introduces the women exactly in this order. And I am following the same order uh, to tell the stories. Uh, As I write, uh, somewhere I find that all the stories, all the characters are in some way or the other related. Their stories are entwined. And uh, their struggles have some kind of uh, overlap. Uh, so Sati, uh, we call it Sati because uh, it's, of course, the Panchkanya, uh, who have been called the uh, greatest of women whose names, if you take in the morning or any time, you get strengthened, you feel the spiritual strength within yourself. And they have been called uh, Sati as the epitome of great purity. Uh, now, if you look at uh, these five women, uh, they don't fall into the traditionally uh, outlined definition of purity, which we have believed, the body purity. And that, I found, was really fascinating. Uh, so we named it Sati series. Sati is actually a more uh, you know, a sarcastic name rather than a uh, uh, an organic name that came to us because uh, Sati, the word, had been used politically and socially in a very devastating way when the epics had actually mentioned them from a far more philosophical and broader and uh, profound way. So the second installment of the Sati series, Kunti, is about um, a very important character in the Mahabharata. I'm sure the vast majority of the audience would have at least some sense of who Kunti is, but maybe briefly tell us um, who Kunti is in the Mahabharata. Uh, 
Kunti is broadly known as the father, as the mother or the funder, uh, who got her children from uh, three children were hers and two from her uh, uh, from the other wife of her husband Pandu, which was Madhuri. So the Pandava, which is uh, Drap, uh, which is uh, Yudhishthir, Bhim, Arjun, Nakul, and Sahadev, she mothered them uh, in life and brought them up to be excellent warriors. That is what is known about Kunti. But uh, what I figured was that Kunti would have far more in her story than just that reflective mention that she was the mother of uh, Pandava and uh, the one who had uh, abandoned Karna at birth. Uh, Kunti have often been called manipulative by uh, many uh, tellings and retelling, many oral uh, retellings and also in writings. And I have also been asked in many literature festivals that before Kunti got published that whether I was planning to see Kunti as a, uh, as a typical uh, South Asian mother with great love, great sacrifice, or I would look at her as a manipulative woman that she is known as. And uh, my answer was that Kunti, I see Kunti as a very ambitious woman. And in my writing, that journey of understanding uh, her character and take, plucking her away from that word manipulative and reestablishing her into that word ambitious had been quite a journey. And I have tried to put a complete logic into it. That's fascinating. We'll certainly dive into the the structure of your retelling, and we'll also dive into its significance in terms of the relevance of mythological stories and and uh, issues surrounding uh, the way women are presented in such tales. But first, let's talk a little bit about your process. Were there particular sources that you were inspired by? Were you reading a particular uh, translation or retelling? Um, that's the first kind of question. And the second question is, to what extent is this, um, is this a work of your own creation versus um, something that's more, more of a strict translation from, from Mahabharata, for example? So, uh, Raj, when I was small, uh, I had uh, my own collection of books and uh, my mother's. So we had the translations, Bengali translations of both Ramayana and Mahabharata. And uh, all my holidays would start with reading either of the two. And only after reading these would I move to other stories or other books that I would want to read. So I have read these so many times. I think uh, that time I was too small to understand that why I was reading. Uh, not that I know now, but I do feel that probably I was not happy with certain explanations, and I wanted to still uh, figure why were certain why were certain things the way they was. Uh, when I grew up, uh, I continued to read a lot of mythology, uh, retold, reinterpreted by various authors, but those questions somewhere stayed. And uh, I was also very fascinated with, uh, with different characters like uh, Shiva and Kali and Indra. I mean, very few people have worked on Indra. I always wondered how, why. 
I do know now why, but uh, I found it a little disturbing because uh, I found Indra very fascinating. Uh, so m- many years after, when I was already an author, I had authored four books, and uh, my fictions usually had some kind of mythological touch because I was so uh, drawn into them. They came to me organically. Uh, it just came to my mind that uh, why not write Panchkanya? And Ahalya's story was the first to strike. And uh, I actually didn't think much, you know. It's not that I read and thought and it came out. It just, I had a spark of an idea. I sat down and I started writing. And the story unfolded. And uh, after Ahalya was written, I could see the uh, link I could see the uh, chronological uh, order of the stories, which binds all the five, and yet their struggles are as different as they can be. So it was not that I researched all over again. I had certain uh, germs built inside probably many years ago, and uh, they uh, worked, uh, worked up when I sat on the computer. But yes, there are times when, you know, I get confused about, about which time is what and what happened after what. So I am well connected with many authors. I just ask over WhatsApp that when did this happen? When was he born? After this or before this? So they know that this is the phase I am going through. I am writing and while I am writing, uh, if I am writing Ahalya, I will not go back to reading anything about Ahalya because I tend to get uh, influenced. So... Uh, they know about this particular uh, process, so they immediately respond and tell me about Vivek uh, uh, Debra. Especially, I would like to uh, mention that he had been a very, very strong influence, and uh, he has. I have received his blessing in advance. He was actually on the podcast earlier this year about his um, Mahabharata translation. Uh, uh, the process that you describe is um, fascinating, but not surprising. Uh, I've touched on this theme in previous podcasts, uh, something along the lines of the following. You know, stories become internalized. Like stories, narratives are the tissues of consciousness, of civilizations. They hold together peoples. Uh, and that principle is... Uh, gloriously uh, exemplified in the Indic context. And so uh, I think it was uh, Ramanujan who said, uh, a scholar, um, who pointed out what's obvious, but you put the obvious into conscious language and it's something worth remembering, uh, that no Indian hears the epics for the first time. (laughs) They never hear it for the first time. It's just part of the the tissues of of culture. So it's it's fascinating to me um, that you've internalized these narratives and that that requires a, a, a state of embodiment. You internalize them, they're part of your psyche. This is the whole project of, of storytelling to children. Most of the themes are far beyond their capacity to comprehend or anything they would need in their preschool life. But the stories stay with them stay with us so that we can make decisions later so we can reflect consciously later. So it's interesting to me that you, you sort of digest and germinate this as you internalize it and then you bring it out into 
this narrative. And this is why I feel that even scholars of narratives, they're well served to spend a year, spend two years, spend some time and read it daily or weekly or whenever you can, because then it becomes a, a way of being. You become familiar with it. In Like when you live with someone, you become familiar with them. You can anticipate what they will do or how they will think. Um, so, so this story of Kunti, um, what are some of the innovations that you've made to it? Or uh, otherwise put, what are some of the key points of her story that, that, that you found most compelling or that you were most passionate about writing? Uh, so, Raj, I have not deviated much from the uh, original framework of the story that I was very clear. What I have done is interpretation. Interpretation as in uh, the, the Hindu philosophical texts uh, or ancient literature has told us stories, but they have not given us you know, bulleted points as morals that this is what you should learn. Uh, people read stories and they formed their own uh, inferences and uh, nobody told them to form those. Those uh, takeaways were their own depending upon the politics of that particular era when they were read. So when Kunti's story was told to me, I heard the story of a very stone-hearted mother who raised uh, five warriors, but was also uh, extremely uh, uh, cruel towards the sixth, or probably the first, not probably, the first. Uh, when I read, uh, or when I thought about Kunti, I did find the loopholes of that story, and uh, I mean, of that kind of storytelling. And that I found was the most disturbing and I wondered that why didn't anybody point this out or why wasn't such interpretation ever, uh, you know, bloom out. For example, uh, Karna, Kunti's firstborn. And these stories have so much of relevance with modern life. In Kunti's story, I see the issues, many issues of a working mother today. And that is how... Uh, Connected these stories are to modern lives. I see the stories, uh, the, the problems of a working mother, where I see that Kunti was not ready for motherhood at some point of time, and motherhood was thrust upon her, and she didn't have any other option but to uh, go for it. I think Kunti's relationship was with Surya, uh, I enjoy, really enjoyed building up, and it was the most difficult thing for me to write compared to her relationship with Indra, which was probably a little more mechanical. But uh, Kunti's relationship with Indra was something, I mean, I really, really enjoyed. I really, really uh, spent time on it. And especially the fact that I had been told that she uh, abandoned Karna, a very cruel thing for a mother to do. But the fact was that Kunti was ambitious. She had goals. She was so ambitious that being a, a princess from earth, she wanted a child from the king of heavens. She was that level ambitious. And a mother is always ambitious. 
someone who is looking at the future and trying to build something, leave a legacy, uh, she will always be extremely ambitious. And here, by just saying mother, I don't mean the physical connection of a mother. Uh, I mean motherhood on a far broader scale. If you are running this podcast, and if it is your property, you are a mother to it, right? You would constantly want it to grow. You would want it to uh, be discussed. You would want it to constantly flourish and be spoken about. So motherhood is a far bigger uh, construct than simply reducing it to just a body. Now, this lady was not prepared for motherhood, but it was thrust upon her. And she wanted to go for her. She wanted to pursue her goals. She wanted to go for her ambition, something that she had been eyeing upon for a long time. She lets the child go. But it is not that she had abandoned. Surya is the god who can see three different uh, facets of time, right? He can see the past, present and future. The light of Surya reaches everywhere. So all Kunti did was, she had left the child to the care of the father. She had not abandoned him. There are many instances in both Ramayana and Mahabharata where sages, because of their own spiritual pursuits, had left their children to the care of the mother and gone for their own uh, big receivings, big goals. Those were applauded. How was Kunti different? Kunti wanted her son to be the greatest warrior of uh, Mahabharat. And she wanted him to take control of everything that was going haywire. Isn't that a splendid thing for a woman to do? There's so many interesting points in what you're saying. Um, what I'm hearing, one part of what I'm hearing that I think is very important um, when you're dealing with individuals, whether on a podcast, whether coaching, whether teaching, is that a person is a person first. And a person is a person before um, or beyond whether or not they have a uterus or have used it to birth life, be, beyond their age, beyond their, their, their the body that they're in. And all. A person's a person first. And so... When one uses the term, you know, mother, brother, guru, shisha, whatever it is, one brings up this archetypal imaginaire that may not exist (laughs) or may be at odds with that actual individual. Um, I like the frame of ambition because it it makes sense. So, uh, so... I run this this, uh, online school called the School of Indian Wisdom, and it's mythology heavy. And so interpreting mythology for uh, modern-day relevance, it's sort of second nature. I quite resonate with that. We were doing a tutorial yesterday, and uh, this current course, because Navratri is around the corner, at least Mm. at the time of recording this podcast, in the timeless time of podcast land, it might be, who knows when you'll be hearing this. But the, the current course is called Summoning Shakti. It's looking at the Devi Mahatmya, the narratives, uh, the Chandipath, the ritual recitation. And yesterday's tutorials focused heavily on Kali and the extent to which she's demonized and fetishized. Of course she's gruesome. Of course she's um, extremely powerful, volatile. Folks don't seem to understand she's episodic. It's an episodic mode, and then she's folded back into a saumya, pleasant. 
mother. Another interesting point that you made, I was saying to the class, motherhood doesn't matter with respect to your gender or your status. I mean, there's this beautiful hymn, uh, verse in this hymn in the Devi Mahatmya, Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Mathrupena Samsata. The hymn says, to that goddess who lives in all beings, not all female beings, not all human beings, not all in all beings as motherhood. Why would it say that? Because this is something archetypal or psychological, psycho-spiritual. So it's interesting. With respect to your particular read on Kunti, um, I actually hoped you'd bring up the episode between her and Surya because you treat it with a fair bit of nuance. Um I'll share my views on it uh, on the actual episode at some point. But how do folks, how have folks in your experience often received or interpreted that episode? Firstly, and then we'll talk about um, how you interpret it in in in, in your publication uh, about Kunti's relationship with Surya. With Surya, the encounter, the the, the conceiving of Karna. Yeah. So it. Actually, one after the other, it was disturbing me. The first thing that came to mind was what was that boon which was given to Kunti by Durvasa uh, and why? So uh, I had to actually understand that, I mean, it, a lot of things were going, out, going on in the brain, you know, physics, metaphysics, uh, astrology, astronomy. It was a very confusing phase when I was trying to understand that what must have led to that boon, which, uh, and what was that boon which can get her the power to uh, get the gods on earth and compel them to come to her. And if they com are compelled to come to her, why can't they go midway? I mean, you initiate something, why can't you stop in between? What stops? Uh, so, obviously, when it comes to Surya, it just uh, came to me that it was not just that Kunti had called upon Surya and now Kunti had to give herself to Surya and uh, come back with a child. Kunti was trapped in that space with Surya without engaging with him. She would not be freed. And equally, Surya was trapped with Kunti. So initially, while Kunti thinks that she is, she has been taken hostage, she eventually understands that it's not that only she had been taken hostage. Surya had also been a prisoner. And now uh, I had planted that uh, sea of prayers, which was building up because everybody needs Surya. Without him, the earth stops operating. So the prayers were building up. Everybody was looking for Surya. Uh, Surya was being called. Uh, people were, uh, not just people, every form of life was uh, blaming the kind of uh, witchly spell that may have uh, kept Surya away from the earth. And it was a complete chaos. And that is when Kunti had to take a call that do I still st sit stubbornly and not go for it? Or do I finish it off here? And whatever happens, I'll see. And that is actually something which, you know, uh, is a part of many entrepreneurial journeys. Ratan Tata says that I don't necessarily take the right decisions. I take a decision and make it right. So, you know, 
I see that connect that she had no other option and she took that decision that okay I have taken a plunge now let me go through it and I'll face the consequences whatever be it and of course she laid her terms and conditions very significantly before she went through it that talks about a lot of uh, a lot of ownership of a woman on her body on her mind on her decisions on her future on her uh on the way uh, she has been brought up and the way she wants to be uh, you know uh, handled or on the way in the way she wants to be treated by someone she feels is an equal this part from kunti has been uh, has received a lot of interesting responses but not necessarily the kind of responses that i thought it will receive because i felt that Uh, a few people may have missed out especially uh, the sea of prayers it was that part is something very very close to my heart and uh, i mean uh, i was very happy you know writing that uh, portion but uh, that portion didn't receive much of attention rather uh, the portions that received attention was uh, kunti's relationship with pandu and matri So in your view do you feel that um Kunti had a choice in that situation or do you feel that she was bound uh, Kunti knew very well what were the consequences whatever uh decision she took so she took an informed decision uh, it was not that uh, she was bound and uh Surya had left her to that that it's your decision you had initiated it so i see a lot of bravery a lot of courage in that where you know i jump into mud i can quickly come out clean my feet off and say that i never jumped or i jumped into mud i can own up that situation and say that i jumped into mud uh, whatever happens i will clean my own floor kunti did the letter So the situation in your view is such that um Kunti initiated this with the mantra right yes. she 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 began this process yes she may not have exactly planned it that way anticipated then, yes, the yes yes not everything happens yes. the way you want it well it's it's a it's a gripping um fascinating uh potentially jarring encounter um there are various scholars and of course to them I mean anybody who reads the text can have an opinion but there are a number of colleagues um uh, who err on the side of um highlighting the uh, impropriety of surya the extent to which he forced himself on her uh some colleagues use uh use um provocative language to describe the situation uh one of the most recent that i've come across is a, is uh one mentioned this as comparable to date rape in the sense and i completely understand to a large extent that position i also understand the opposite position of there is above and beyond this particular situation there is a principle throughout the mahabharata that boons and curses bear fruit no matter what even the, the sage who issues them can't retract them 
And there is also, in addition to whatever impropriety or enjoyment one might attribute to Surya, there is this idea that a boon and a curse can't be revoked. She was given this boon, Mm -hmm. the mantra was uttered, they were both duty-bound. And with the sort of psychology of Surya, when you understand myths of Surya, you understand that Surya represents duty, even to the extent of being cruel or cruelly executing duty. Someone breaks the law, maybe they're in a pitiful situation, but they have to be punished. This is Surya. It rises and sets, it's predictable. It's the letter of the law, right? This is Surya. So it makes much more sense from that perspective, at least to me, that the character of Surya would have been completely duty-bound by this boon. Having said that, one could easily see impropriety there on his behalf. I mean, it's open to interpretation. The other piece that I find fascinating as well that probably more corroborates um, your reading than the opposite reading is that um, she negotiates. She doesn't say, please, 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 please give me this. Please, no, please. It's, not a, it's not a pleading plea for mercy. It's like, okay, but you have to give me this and you have to give me this and you have to give me this. She's an ambitious person. She wants to... She wants to ensure the security of her line, right? It's fascinating. It's fascinating, and I think well, I think when we when we understand that this these are uh, very human impulses, um, ancient Indian myth is not so foreign. It's it's very much what we go through negotiating with sexuality um going uh, ending in a uh, starting something where it ends differently than one might expect and so it is a fascinating encounter uh is there any other encounter in the in the book that you'd like us to touch on you want to share about mm. uh it's not something that I would like to, you know, put on you. I think uh, I would uh, rather go with your decision on that. Well, there's a number of encounters, right? So, in term, what I'm, what the question is asking about is, what did you find most gripping or intriguing? We talked about the Surya episode. So, what else gripped you? Oh, that's what the question is. Uh, the the other thing that I found most gripping in this uh, story is Kunti bringing uh, Madri into Pandu's life to actually bail herself out. And the kind of, uh, you know, uh, the kind of uh, very political, very uh, uh, strong uh, relationship that she had, that very briefly appears with Bhishma. because uh, the way I see that Bhishma is a kingmaker, and if there's nobody to make, Bhishma is jobless. And Bhishma is the one who has taken a huge bow, bow, and the bow taker <laughs> cannot accept himself as jobless. And uh, I mean, there are some uh, small, uh, you know, uh, uh, spaces which suggests that he had actually pushed Vidur towards Kunti instead of being very direct. Uh, he had been very direct rather with uh, when he kidnapped 
Amba Ambika and Ambalika on the advice of Mother Satyavati. So what he learned from Satyavati was there with him, but probably he felt a little awkward in doing the same with Kunti just because of the gender mismatch. So he just pushed and waited and he never expected that Kunti will take it up from there and turn the entire thing head on in her favor, doing things that she wanted to do and completely dismissing Bhishma. So Madri's entrance into Pandu's life was kind of, uh, I mean, Kunti felt, I mean, the way I have seen the story, that by bringing Madri in Pandu's life, Kunti actually, it was a good riddance for Kunti. She was now free to dream about Indra or be careful about the things that were happening around her because the palace of Hastinapur has always been a space of a very strong political discourse, something or the other constantly happening without, with or without people knowing, accepting, acknowledging, agreeing. So she had to be very careful about what is happening. And step by step, as things happened, she kept on taking ownership and pulling the power in her own hands. So that part was uh, very difficult for me to, you know, build up. But it has been a very uh, interesting writing journey. So one of the themes that comes out of your writing, I would say, I mean, there are a number of them in terms of tropes, is uh, this idea of agency. And you tend to accord these women, or at least Kunti, uh, with a great deal of agency and character. Um, so what would you say, here's where I'm coming from. So some of, um, there's a Mahabharata course at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. I, I teach there, I tutor online courses there. Um, and just this past semester we had um, a, a, a super bright, dedicated lover of all things Indic. Uh, she's of, of Western origin. She takes a number of uh, Hinduism courses at the OCHS. And um, she finally got to the Mahabharata course, and she was quite disillusioned. She was disillusioned because despite what she perceived as the Mahabharata's uh, real relevance and 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 and, and, and I mean, there's so much there. She was really disillusioned at the extent to which women, quote unquote, were the property of men, um, 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 Draupadi, you know, Kunti. And this is obviously uh, a very commonly held view. Um, what would you say to folks who come away reading whatever? Um, a summary or a book or an episode of the Mahabharata or a Smith translation or some of the some of them Van Butenen or anything and they're like, wow, look how the women are treated. This epic is um, uh, it's so sexist. It's it's written by men for men, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's the world of men. What would you say to that uh, uh, student or interlocutor? Raj, I would tell that student to please, please disown every retelling that they may have heard as children where their grandparents and their parents had told them their stories. And read the stories as original as they can lay their hands on and interpret the stories completely afresh. 
they will find that this these stories are the most progressive stories that one can find and i don't say this with any kind of agenda or any kind of propaganda i say this because i myself have experienced it i have found that these stories are talking about women from a very i mean just see the construct of sati right draupadi kunti they have they didn't have one man in their lives right and still they are called the sati the purest one because these literatures did not accord any importance to anything that is temporary one of them being the body today in our feminist discourse we talk about women's purity which is not restricted to the body but a far larger and broader construct called the mind and the soul so many days ago a literature had called ahalya who is uh, when i was told the story i was told that she cheated on gautam her husband with indra the king of heavens then kunti got her children from five devas from four devas uh draupadi five husbands so these stories had been told to us in a particular way and the way they had been told uh they carry the political uh, you know compromisation of the era from which the storyteller had come for years of patriarchy these stories had been uh, convoluted in every way possible now you look at it if i may divert a little bit the way i have thought as you said right in the beginning that no uh, indian child can hear the stories from the epics for the first time you know in every indian household especially in hindu households the first story that a child hears is from the ramayan or the mahabharat now that is the stage i think readers or consumers of story passes through three different stages of hearing a story the first stage is that of fantasy when they are children and everything comes to them as a fantasy they have many questions but they want to believe they question not because they want to contradict they question because they want to rationalize and find their own reasons to believe it so that is a fantasy world where everything is magical they want to believe and that is the time when children are told the stories which feature the bravery of arjun and krishna and uh, rama and karna and they are not told who sita was who draupadi was and in the way the stories are told it seems like sita and draupadi and kunti and mandodari were just there either to become the reasons of war or they are molested or uh, you know they are nuisance creators lakshman rekha we are told that lakshman rekha is for the woman if you cross that something will happen so woman should be in lakshman rekha when the deeper or bigger philosophy is lakshman rekha is meant for everybody every individual they cross it and they face it so in that stage of fantasy when you create the stories or craft the stories in a way where only one section of the society is celebrated and the other is dumped the lack of loss of agency or the uh, typical uh, patriarchal thought process starts developing from there after the fantasy stage comes the stage of literature 
where people have a lot of problems, where people have a lot of questions. They try to seek answers. They read more. They understand more. Those questions keep on building into their subconscious. And finally, the last stage, the literature stage, is the longest stage of one's life. And then the last stage is the philosophy stage, when your subconscious starts returning answers. And you yourself start getting those answers in your brain. Now, if you have passed through that fantasy stage with a specific kind of conditioning, it's very difficult for you to get into that philosophy stage where you are not self-sufficient or you, are not, you don't have the kind of framework pre-built which enables you to challenge, unlearn and relearn. So I would request these readers to go back to their fantasy stage. It might be a little difficult, but it's not impossible. Go back to your fantasy stage, come back to your literature stage, and then reach your philosophy stage. You will find a lot more meaning than otherwise. One of the analogies I use um, in tutorials in teaching narrative, whether the course is on Puranas or um, the epics, is that you know when you're thirsty and you're you 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 might be in the desert you know your your mouth is dry and someone hands you this, this this coconut and the coconut is coarse and dry and hard and it's the last thing you want to put in your mouth right but if you can crack it you have the the best hydration possible this is narrative this is this is if you can crack the narrative if you can find a way to to decode what's inside and avail it for your own hydration. Uh, it's rich. It's absolutely rich. It seems clear to me that one of the prime functions of, of mythological narratives is the preservation of philosophical and spiritual truths. Um, another small point, whether folks believe the Mahabharata to be historical or not historical, in my view, is the wrong question. <laughs> the, qu the question isn't the, the historical veracity. It's the spiritual veracity, the philosophical veracity. The, the humanistic veracity of the Mahabharata. That is the essence of it. One misses the point if one is trying to focus on whether or not Arjuna walked the earth 5,000 years ago. That's not the power of the mythological story, it seems to me. And so I sort of sidestep that question. Whether you believe these are exemplars who walk the earth, they have something to teach you about humanity. Whether you believe these are great works of literature, they have something to teach you about humanity. So uh, I actually have been scolded by professors for calling them mythology. So I know where you are coming from. Uh, you know, the, uh, the way I see it, I don't know whether they walked on the soil of India ever. I was not there to see it. And I don't know of anybody who was there to see it. So uh, the way I see these, that yes, you can call them... so. When we are seeking answers, so for example, in every era, intellectuals try to find out who am I and where do I come from? And this question takes them behind because I come from something, right? So they go behind and they go through different eras of Indian history where they pass through different dynasties, the Mughal dynasty, the Maurya dynasty and such like. And there is one point of time that they are still not satisfied with the answers that they get, they try to go behind, behind, and more behind, and they land into mythology. 
and the reason why uh, they cross the ocean of history and land into the ocean of mythology i put it across like that is because mythology is eternal it cannot be dated that from this date to that date you can of course research and put a date to it but then it is it, it you will seldom find very hard bound you know uh, evidence for it mythology is eternal or mytho simply because it is relevant till date and even today you find in the world around you a krishna a karna a draupadi a kunti and a halva so they have never started they have never stopped they are eternal and that is the reason i call it mythology uh, i know this will again get me some scoldings but it's okay but it's it's the question of whether the text is mythological or historical i think one can bracket that off and and see the rich examples in in the narrative i think that yeah. there can be common ground on the basis of the world within the text versus the world behind it which is included to us um, um and it's not such that uh, i su- i suspect you you're, you're the same it's not such that uh it is meant to denigrate these works by calling them mythological yeah. it's such that mythology is to be exalted because yeah. mythology is profound it's not oh it's a myth we have this pejorative word of oh it's a myth it's a lie it wasn't real that's not what mythology is the power of myth is the power of the human experience put into narrative form it's profound absolutely and i think that mythological stories are brilliant uh, and you know this debate can go on forever and uh, as folks as listeners of this podcast know um it's a neutral collegial space uh, i have folks uh, in vying factions folks of different academic opinions different methodologies different subfields this is a space for whomever wishes to share uh, on on the work producing and the listeners can choose for themselves which podcast they want to listen to which works they want to to buy but this is this is sort of uh, my philosophy uh, so it's it's been a pleasure speaking with you about your work was there anything else about kunti that you hoped we would touch on today <laughs> i don't think uh, i would have an answer for that because i absolutely don't think about it in fact post publication i haven't even read it because i feel that if i read it i'll find something which i don't agree to or i feel that i will i would have written better if i had written it now so <laughs> i mean i would uh, yes. rather not get there well i i was joking with a with a colleague the other day and mentioned that i, I never listen i i have not listened to one of these podcasts these 150 <laughs> podcasts I've done <laughs> it's human nature and no work is perfect it's yeah, i think absolutely. folks need to understand that every creator and every author accepts that no work is perfect and even a year later you could improve it you're changing you're growing you're evolving it's so easy to critique it's so easy it's effortless a 5 year old can do it yeah real intelligence is in positing what do you posit what do you suggest the way you know i look at it is uh, i mean uh, sometime back i was talking to just before kunti was published uh, i and uh, chitra banerjee dibakaruni had been uh, on a web show and we were discussing about her kunti in palace of illusions and mind 
and uh, you know she was saying that she enjoyed writing the mother-in-law daughter-in-law uh, you know politics that played between kunti and draupadi and uh, i will be submitting draupadi in uh, a fortnight you know, to my publisher and uh, when i had i mean i'm still writing uh, correcting documenting and when i write that i don't see kunti and draupadi having a typical mother in law daughter in law uh, you know uh, fight the way you would have probably seen 10 years before because i feel that uh, these are royal women who would not be fighting on petty things they would have far their discourse even if they have disagreements they would be far more you know political they would be far more uh, different i mean they would not be fighting on who cooks better so the reason i brought this out is that every 5 years every 10 years when there is a different voice to the women of mythology something progresses and uh, if i have made an attempt where uh, the sati series beat ahalya kunti mandodari draupadi tara whoever if i have brought their narratives a little ahead from what exists i would be happy to settle with that with full belief that someone who would be writing after 2 5 10 years would take it ahead from where i have left the narrative because by then the society the thinking the critical uh, rewarding will have progressed a little more a fantastic final thought so thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today For those of you who are listening uh in the timeless time of podcast land we've been speaking with Coral Dasgupta on her brand new uh a uh, 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 book Kunti it is um a narrative rendition of the story of this extremely important character in the Mahabharata she is actually the primary mother of the Pandavas a great matriarch uh full of flair ambition uh profound in her strength um whose stories uh whose story certainly um is 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 laden with twists and turns um uh, until next time stay safe stay sane keep reading keep listening and keep contemplating the power of myth take care